Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is the Windsor hum? Are crop circles becoming more intricate and bizarre? What is the oscillating universe theory? Hello and welcome to the 653rd broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben and I'm back and today we are bringing you or bringing back an old friend who is one of the world's most prominent science journalists and we welcome your questions and calls. Uh, the numbers are 800-449-1240 that's from anywhere in the US or Canada and 401-766-1240 locally or you can email us paul at behindtheparanormal.com for those. Linda Moulton Howe is an Emmy Award-winning television producer, documentary filmmaker, and an investigative science and environmental journalist who, among many other things, operates EarthFiles.com, the award-winning news website where experts, eyewitnesses, and viewers have been sharing the latest updates in Earth and astronomical mysteries since 1999. A graduate of Stanford University with a master's degree in communication, Linda ranges the world and has received no less than two dozen TV production and journalism awards for excellence. Her books include An Alien Harvest, Further Evidence Linking Animal Mutilations and Human Abductions to Alien Life Forms, Glimpses of Other Realities, Volumes 1 and 2, about U.S. military intelligence and civilian testimonies about other forces that interact with terrestrial life, and Mysterious Lights and Crop Circles. Linda is everywhere in the media that cover those topics and is a regular contributor on Coast to Coast AM. So, Linda Moulton Howe, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Oh, well, it's good to have you back. So, when we talk about sky sounds, what are we talking about? Well, when it comes to these unusual sounds that have included booms, sounds almost like a trumpet, uh, screeching metallic sounds, they go back to, in my work, January of 2011. And that was the very first time in my work at earthfiles.com that I've been producing, writing, directing, and reporting since 1999 that I started getting dozens. This wasn't just a single email. It was dozens of emails coming from a variety of locations saying, let's say, they will wake up at night. Or uh, one person, I think, was out uh, walking a dog. Uh, There were a variety of locations and times where they said, and I heard, and what they were describing was, for the most part, most people in January 2011 were describing a huge boom sound, and the others, the metallic screeching sounds and the trumpet sounds, began to emerge later. But they all were coming in at the same time, and as I began to note and put out at Earth Files, anyone who has heard an unusual boom that has not been identified by Homeland Security or police or uh, media or seismic, USGS, or military, there is a long list you have to go through. Well, now we are in 2016 August, and I think in the last five years, uh, it is not an exaggeration to say that I personally have had at least a 1,000 reports from not only uh, the United States and Canada, but throughout Central America, parts of South America, Australia, New Zealand, and a tremendous number of reports 
in the uh, Western Europe especially area, but uh, the Ukraine uh, has definitely had uh, the perhaps one of the most haunting of all in Kiev. It was recorded, if I'm remembering correctly, on August 11th or 12th in 2011. So that would be five years ago in that same year. And the story, the backstory, was that a woman who worked in a video uh, production company in the in, in Kiev, in the Ukraine, who had equipment in her living room. It, it sounds just like me. I have equipment of varying kinds for video and audio, literally on two stories in different rooms. And the uh, the backstory is she heard a sound. Her children, you can hear playing uh, in the background. And she picked up, uh, or she walked to the balcony, and I believe she was on the ninth story. And she hears this unusual trumpet eerie sound and goes and gets her video camera comes back to the balcony and starts running for approximately 12 minutes it is an extraordinarily unusual sound from beginning to end now in the last five years variations on that theme from kiev and the ukraine have been reported in texas in mexico in costa rica in a whole lot of places and the, uh, I'll call them the critics of the world, they will say, well, obviously, uh, the whole thing was a hoax in Kiev, and uh, people are just copying the original hoax, and they are blending in themes from that in all these videos, and they're all hoax. I do not subscribe to that as an explanation at all. One of the videos that I had on uh, Coast and on Dreamland and at Earth Files and other media that I do around 2013, if I'm correctly remembering, it could have been 2012, but it was in Texas. And there was a rain, there was rain and there was wind. And they, a person heard this sound and went out and videotaped and it is so eerie to have mixed that with wind and rain at the level at which that you could hear the, all of this uh, I think was uh, probably not possible in the way that this was recorded all of this is to say that it has been a complex extremely strange but persistent phenomenon that it did have a beginning in January of 2011, and that adding to the mystery is that in some of the huge booms of which USGS and military and Homeland Security and many others have said they have no knowledge of the source or why, there have also been reported by people and recorded in a couple of videotapes a huge bright white light that usually precedes, the light precedes, comes before the huge boom sound. What that is about, nobody seems to know. And I think uh, closing this out as a brief overview, it's extremely important to remember that in Wisconsin, I believe this was uh, back in around 2012-ish, 
2013-2. The mayor of a city there was on CNN and Fox all over the place talking about the uh, week of unusual huge boom sounds that kept being reported at different uh, times, day and night, and that she personally was out at, when the first call came in at 1 o'clock in the morning at the beginning of this syndrome. She, uh, as mayor, uh, she called the chief engineer of the city. She called the police. She called USGS. She called a whole bunch of people. And she met her uh, law enforcement and city managers downtown. Uh, I think it was Madisonville, Wisconsin. And she met them to walk where in this area of the city where there had been this huge boom that they had gotten hundreds of calls to police and, and 911. And as they are walking, it's, uh, I believe this is when it was getting near to early morning, and they'd been out all night, and she is walking on a sidewalk, and she said all of a sudden there was this horrific sound she said it was like an explosion, like you would associate with a bomb. But she said, Linda, because it was an interview I did with her, she said, the bottom of my feet were slapped by whatever this percussion was. She said, it hurt. The next night, the same thing happened. Uh, she had, there was another huge boom, and she felt it at the bottom of her feet. And she said, like so many other people have asked me, how could it sound like the boom is coming from above in the air, as many people think, but the physical percussion would slap the bottom of shoes on sidewalks? And there is one of the big mysteries about these unusual sounds around the world for the last five years, where people think the sound is coming from may or may not be the true source, and I don't have an answer. Regarding the um, Windsor hum, and yeah. we, we heard about that very early on because we were, uh, we had a, there was one of the CBS stations in Detroit carried our show, and we had a lot of listeners in that area, and Windsor's right across, Windsor, Ontario, right across the river from Detroit. There was much speculation uh, well, first of all, why don't you tell us about the Windsor hum, and then we'll tell you what people told us. Well, let's see. It is a completely different sound than what I've just been talking to you about. It's not a boom. It's not sounding like a trumpet. Uh, it's not like metal scraping. It is more, as many eyewitnesses have said, it is like listening to a diesel truck parked outside of your bedroom with the motor running. And I have done, uh, I think now, two in-depth reports on it uh, specifically. And the one that I did most recently was with Colin Novak. He's a Ph.D. mechanical engineer from the University of Windsor. And he has been called in as an expert uh, witness to take a position from, if you uh, look at a map, at earthfiles.com, I just opened up my most recent story, so I'm looking at the map. 
if you are thinking where Detroit is in Michigan, on the United States side, directly across the Detroit River, within a short, short distance, is Windsor, Ontario, Canada. If you come going east down to uh, not very far, uh, it's uh, only, I think, uh, LaSalle is only about uh, 12 miles south of Zug Island, if anybody is familiar with that area in Win- uh, south of Windsor. And LaSalle is across from River Rouge on the United States side, and River Rouge is the suburban community of people who live and work at industries on what is called Zug Island. And one of those big corporations on Zug Island is United States Steel. And it has been there since 2003. That would be eight years before the, we'll call the noise syndrome began in the world. And it was around 2000. 11, that same year that I've said that all this seemed to begin for whatever reasons, that people in that area between River Rouge, LaSalle, and Windsor, River Rouge, United States, LaSalle, and Windsor on the Ontario side, just uh, both, all of that just opposite the, on the Detroit River, they began reporting to police, the mayors, the, all the various people that they were not, a lot of people said, I cannot sleep. I'm hearing this irritating low rumbling. What is it? And that set in motion uh, these investigations. Today, in 2016, partly because of the work of Professor Colin Novak uh, at the University of Windsor, we now do have graphic and statistical information about the nature and characteristic of what it is that they have been recording. They have done audio recordings, both over uh, on Zug Island and where people live across the river, and they have found that they are dealing with something around 60 hertz that is persistent. It'll go up a little, down. it'll go down to 35 hertz, uh, and sometimes it was consistent at 35 hertz, when the professor wrote a report, he said 60 hertz, but the truth is, in the graph that he sent me, it is really 35 hertz seems to be the statistical average. So there is some inconsistency, but what he thinks, the bottom line is, that these hertz signals are coming from the furnaces of U.S. steel. Now. Why? Why would suddenly, after 2011, would there be uh, something new to U.S. Steel's operations? Well, one of the most interesting things in that interview with Professor uh, Novak is that if you understand the process of what has to go into a steel batch that's being melted in one of those big... Uh, uh, ovens or, or the, the smelters. If something is called for by, let's say, the Defense Department, U.S. Steel could be under contract to the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense, and that they are asking for some sort of very 
special metal, a metal mix. It could then affect what they are putting in their steel mix and how high, because the professor thinks that these sounds are related to when the steel manufacturer is operating at an extremely high heat and that that might have been called upon for limited batches that could serve some unique and maybe classified operation. And why does he suggest classified? It's hard to believe this has been going on for a very long time. Why, after five years of Windsor complaints and uh, people on the Canadian side of the river why has there not been any resolution with anyone from U.S. Steel in the United States? There have even been comments from political people saying, why can't we just solve this? And why does U.S. Steel say no comment, which is what the professor said. They have no comment from U.S. Steel. Well, he explains, you know, it's a private corporation. It's a for-profit company. Uh, they simply don't want to allow access or they don't want to cooperate with an investigation because perhaps they are doing something for the U.S. government that is special. Hmm. And that when I asked him, I said, I wonder what would happen if the territories were reversed and the hum were coming from Windsor and the, and the United States was complaining across the river in Dearborn and in the, that area around River Rouge. And the professor said, well, you know, that's a very interesting question. I don't have an answer. And he said, I know that I have been puzzled why representatives of the Canadian government working with the U.S. government could not come to some sort of a solution to a problem that currently in 2016 has been increasing in complaints again on the River uh, on the sorry, on the Windsor side of the river in Canada, and if anyone listening to this program has any more information about that 30 to 60 hertz signal periodically coming from Zug Island, Michigan, I sure would appreciate it if you would contact me at my email address, earthfiles at earthfiles.com. Think of a reporter who files news about the Earth, earthfiles at earthfiles.com. And I always honor requests for confidentiality. But I think we are now at a point, as I am in so many other news stories, that if we don't get whistleblowers or somebody from inside of what's happening perhaps at U.S. Steel or over on Zug Island, we're never going to fully understand why for five years that people on the Canadian side in increasing numbers are complaining that they can't sleep the sound is to them that rattling mm. and yet nothing happens politically between what you would think would be two of the friendliest countries on earth yeah all right. Well, <clears throat> what you said is pretty much what we heard. All the listeners who wrote in about that from that area were pointing to that island. So we'll just have to see, and uh, we will encourage uh, listeners to uh, 
to uh, write in about that and to contact you. So I guess moving on with with the sky sounds. Actually, we ha- I'm sorry, Ben. Uh, we have a um, <laughs> a question from a listener. I'm never allowed yeah. to ask okay. questions again. You can ask questions. You can read. Uh, this is Phil from Orange, Massachusetts. Has, uh, has oh, he numbered them. All right, so uh, yes, he, Phil he is I'm sure a very systematic person. So he writes to us. I'd like to thank you for your courage and perseverance as you explore the mystery of livestock mutilations. My first question is: How difficult uh, has it been for you to endure the sight of these mutilations over so many years? It has not been difficult at all because they are so clean, pristine, completely bloodless. That's what hit me on the first animal that I saw. Uh, I'll describe this to you so you all can understand why the animal mutilation phenomenon has never been explained as predator, disease, or satanical. It was... The first week of September of 1979 that I made my very first phone calls to uh, both ranchers, but especially sheriffs around the state of Colorado. I was director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver. My job was to make documentaries, live studio programs with audiences and news updates about subjects that were affecting the state of Colorado. And... That summer, I had been working on another project when one of my audio people on my crew came off of a shoot for what was just beginning to be 2020 at the ABC network in New York. So he was on that network crew, and we were sitting having lunch, and he said, Linda, there is the weirdest story. He said, we just spent... Uh, several weeks and over 100,000 feet of double system film back then. That was hugely expensive. And he said, and we couldn't keep the batteries operating back then as opposed to digital equipment today. We worked with Nagras for audio and big, huge cameras for uh, film. Uh, and you had to have clapsticks to uh, have a frame to frame that you could sync between your uh, Nagra audio and the film, and all of that operated on big battery belts that the cameraman and or audio person wore around their uh, waist. And that meant that the uh, camera team, audio and camera, were always connected together by cords. Uh, We called them the umbilical cords, and they had to move together in a kind of ballet Uh, in order to keep everything running, and those battery packs were critical to everything that we did. So when he said, we're on this shoot for ABC and Network, and we cannot keep our battery belts uh, running, he had my attention. I ended up calling the executive producer in New York, introduced myself as director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver, that I had just had this discussion with a crew person and wanted to know when were they going to broadcast their investigation of these unusual animal deaths known as animal mutilations where they could not keep the battery packs going in the field next to these animals? And the EP, the executive producer, told me in that phone call, no, we scrubbed that because we're in the business of news and we could never get any hard answers. That was the entire motivation 
or why I wanted to get to the bottom of the animal mutilations at the beginning, that the ABC network had scrubbed over 100,000 feet of double system film because they couldn't get an answer. So now, in September, after talking with sheriffs and deputies, and they told me off the record, specifically have written about Tex Graves, who had just retired from 23 years in the uh, Logan County Sheriff's Office in northern Colorado, and I went up to see him first, and at the end of a long day of looking at Polaroid photos, all bloodless, very high strangeness, he said, Linda, let me save you some time. The perpetrators of these animal mutilations are creatures from outer space. And I'll never forget that I felt like somebody had hit me with a 220-volt circuit or uh, a garden electric fence. It, it actually had a physical impact on me as I heard those words. And within two weeks of my nagging about what the sheriff had said, I had gotten a call from a deputy and sheriff who knew about the work I was now doing investigating animal mutilations. And this was from Walsenburg, Colorado, at the far southern end of Colorado. Logan County is in the far north. Walsenburg is in the far south. Many uh, hundreds of miles between those two locations. Uh, Linda, I have to interrupt. We have to take our break. But, okay, uh, when we come back, I'll tell absolutely. you about approaching that first mutilation on the ground. Okay. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with Linda Moulton Howe. Stick with us. Everything you know is wrong. Hi, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. Check out our show, Behind the Paranormal, with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240 on Sundays on our new slot at 12 noon. The paranormal is not what you think it is. We're going to examine it from a whole new perspective, and you will be very surprised. Do not check your brain at the door. You're going to need it. Be there. Okay, welcome back. We're going to go through our announcements later on. We'll mention the charities we have adopted on the show. However, right now, let's get back to Linda Moulton Howe and her first cattle mutilation experience. <clears throat> I shouldn't right. say it, that, put it that way, should I? But, uh, but Linda, oh. <laughs> uh, please pick up where you left off. <laughs> yeah. So my crew was Marco Kane audio, Richard Lerner video, me. We went in a, uh, we flew down to Walsenburg and met the sheriff and the deputy in town and followed them out to a very rural area where there was a ranch. We get out of the car with all of our equipment that I was telling you about, the big camera, the nagra, the cords, the battery belts, and the sheriff and deputy start leading us across a field and we came to Willows vertical type willows that grow from the ground up about six to eight feet high. Some of you may have experienced this at some point when you were hunting or out in a hike. And to go through those willows 
to get was was the only option we had to get to the mutilation site. And the sheriff and the deputy are leading the way, and they are literally forcing a path through these thick willows for my cameraman, audio, me behind, because my audio and video guy are running cameras. And we come through this thick band of these thick, thick willows, no space in between them, maybe about six to eight feet of them growing. We came to another little space, and here is this huge tree. It looks like something out of a Walt Disney movie of a tree that would be shaped like a big umbrella that came branches all the way to the ground. I'm not kidding. Almost spherical. And the deputy and the sheriff said, we got to go in here. So now we are bending way down. The sheriff and deputy are lifting up branches from the ground for the cameraman and the audio and for me to come in now under this big tree, completely enclosed. You can't see anything out of these branches once they let those branches down that we entered. And here, underneath all of these tree branches, is a sphere. It's lying on its right side, brown and white, It was so perfect looking, so fresh, it looked like it should be breathing and stand up. But around the left eye was a perfect circle of hide that had been removed along with the eyelids, the eyelashes, and the eyeball. The tongue had been removed deep in the throat. The left side of the jaw had excision, no blood anywhere. The penis had been removed in a perfect oval that was approximately five inches inches long, because I'm talking about an oval, not a circle, and about uh, three inches uh, wide. The rectum had been cored out as perfectly as if uh, the sheriff said it looks like somebody put a stovepipe in there and pulled out a core, and there was no blood, no fluid. And the sheriff said, Linda, look up above. And we are, this space under this tree, we're completely enclosed by the branches, but the space in which the uh, deputy, the sheriff, my cameraman, and uh, Mark, who is a six-foot-four man, they could stand up. That's how much room we had inside of the tree branches. And they, he said, look up. He said, does anything strike you as unusual (laughs) outside of what we were doing? And, And it hit me as soon as the sheriff asked me. And I said, my God, there is not a single broken branch visible anywhere. He said, bingo, that's it. He said, it was the rancher who was missing an animal and called us and we came out and this is what we found. You are seeing exactly what we found before we called you. And the thing that hit us, how do you get a 1,700 pound steer on the ground, under those branches, inside where all the rest of the tree branches are resting on the ground, 
like I told you, it was like a sphere, with all of the willows that we had to push our way through, how did that cow, that steer, get in there, under there, and have these excisions, no blood, no signs of struggle. There were uh, all kinds of tiny little broken sticks, as you would imagine, under a tree like that. There was no disturbance in that ground anywhere. It mm. was as if that cow had been popped, zapped into that space under the tree. Okay. And that was the first case that I and the cameraman and the audio, I remember them looking and saying, holy, you know what, this is impossible. Well, there all these years, 79 from 16, this is the 37th year since, I, since what I just described, and I have been all over this world. I have walked in ranchers, uh, pastures uh, all over the United States and Canada and down in New Zealand, Australia, and in England, and I have seen uh, literally now, I don't know, 100, 200 of these animals, and it is the lack of blood. It is the lack of tracks on the ground. It is the preciseness, the precision that is completely the opposite, totally the opposite of what predators and satanic cults do and cannot be explained by disease, and it is law enforcement that will always tell you when they're honest. We are dealing with creatures from outer space, and there are law enforcement that I have talked to who have told me firsthand about their own sightings of beams of light coming out of disks of light in the sky. One rancher told me that uh, back in 1979 that he had seen with his own eyes one of his cows rising in a beam of light scared him and he didn't go back to that pasture, ran back to the house, and didn't go back until sunup. And he told me, he said, and Linda, there was one of those mutilated animals where I saw the beam of light taking up one of my cattle. But would any of these people who, with eyewitness, saw animals raised or lowered in a beam of light when I was doing the documentary in 79 that broadcast May 25th, 1980, not one of them would stand in front of my camera and say exactly what they were uh, swearing to me they had seen because they, humans are more afraid of the ridicule and the uh, sarcasm of other humans than they are of extraterrestrials. <laughs> yeah. And our government counterintelligence operations have known that since World War II, and counterintel has worked overtime to keep the truth about this subject away from the public and the media. Mm. Well, we have, uh, Ben, there's uh, the question from Phil continues. Yes, well, I mean, you answered a majority of this, but you answered half of the second question. So he essentially asked about the case that you were just talking about, and he ends the question with, is the absence of any signs that the animal walked through the thicket some of the best evidence you've encountered to support the assertion that there are external agents responsible for the phenomena? When you experience what I just described, law enforcement, not just me, the reporter and producer, it's law enforcement who said, this is impossible. How did this 1,700-pound animal, it didn't get there by itself, uh, and it couldn't have been dropped through the tree branches, so how did it get in there? And that's where you begin thinking about technologies 
that can beam a cow up. If it can beam a cow up and put them down, as ranchers and law enforcement have seen, then maybe they can materialize the cow and put it in there almost uh, on purpose, either to hide it or, or who knows. But it is the high strangeness. I'll tell you guys one other that fits into this category of why, as a person who I graduated from Stanford University with a master's degree in communication, I made documentaries for two years at Stanford University, first with the medical center, uh, produced a documentary for them that they used for 19 years after I graduated from Stanford. My master's thesis was on the brand-new effort at the Stanford Linear Accelerator to use computers to analyze atomic bombardment images. Until then, it had all been laborious work by people staring with their eyes and writing things down on paper. So I always have had a beat that was focused on science and medicine and the environment, which is where the animal mutilations fit. I'm trying to get understanding and get to the bottom of why is this happening? How is this happening? Who or what is killing and mutilating these animals in such a strange way? And it is around the world in both hemispheres and has been going on for at least a century. One person in the government told me, Linda, we have uh, evidence that this has been going on on our planet for thousands of years, and it is extraterrestrial. Well, now let's draw, jump to another one of the most haunting incidents that uh, I have ever experienced that underscores what happened in Walsenburg. The crew and I went to Elizabeth, Colorado to interview a man named Bill Wow, W-A-U-G-H. He was a deputy sheriff in uh, the uh, Elizabeth, Colorado, and he worked for a, a wonderful sheriff who was kind of a John Wayne character wouldn't talk much but knew he was dealing with something really strange and that night we went to Bill Waugh's house and I asked him what is the highest strangeness that has convinced you that we're dealing with extraterrestrials because that's what he told me too and he said and it would have been the story I'm telling you would have been approximately uh that this occurred to them around 1976 to 77, and I'm talking to them and him in 79. They had been getting, he said, dozens of reports of dead and mutilated animals, and they had seen a lot of them, and they also were hearing ranchers say, it looks like the barn is on fire with red-orange light, and I go out, and the red-orange light rises into the sky as a ball, and that's when I have a mutilation. So in addition to the reports they were getting by phone, law enforcement was also doing stakeouts at night trying to see these red-orange spheres that they were hearing about from some of the ranchers. And Bill Waugh said, of all things, this, on this one stakeout night, they get communication from Stapleton Airport. That is what it was called in Denver back in the 70s. Uh, Stapleton Airport was letting law enforcement know that they had an unidentified, on radar, moving at tremendous speed, going from uh, north to south, 
from Denver going uh, toward uh, the area of, uh, this was uh, not Raton, New Mexico, this was down in Huerfano County, where a man, Lou Girotto, was, uh, was working, and, and in between Denver and the south part of Colorado, you could fly right over Elizabeth, uh, Colorado, where this deputy was. And so they're hearing about the fact that this thing is moving, and now they start looking in the sky, and this is what eyewitness description. He, re- he compared the color to a pumpkin, a ripe pumpkin. And he said it was spherical, and to the mind, the human eye, he said in the sky to him and the deputy, it looked like the size of a full moon moving at rapid speed, and stopped right in the night sky and went straight down to the ground and into the ground. And he said the deputy and he are looking at each other and what is this? Where did this thing go? They call back the sheriff's office. This is what we've just seen and they're told stay out there and watch and see if any more. After a while, he said, as God is my witness, another one of these, or it's the same, he said, I don't know, Linda, Uh, this full moon orange sphere comes up out of the ground, up into the sky, splits into one orange full moon sized sphere going north, Another one going south, like they multiplied into two from the one that came up out of the ground, and took off. Okay, so now he, the the deputy telling me this story, is that he and the other deputy, they get in their car, and they are going to try to travel to this area where they have seen this, and they come to a a part a place in the road where there is an intersection and they had just briefly stopped the uh, deputy car deciding what they were going to do at the intersection when one of the deputies yells oh my god look there's a, another orange thing and he said this one coming straight at their car he estimated was maybe three to five feet in diameter and the thing that they had seen in the sky, he said, if it looks like a full moon, it's got to be pretty big. But this, he thought, was smaller. And they, it's coming straight at their deputy car. And he said he yelled to his deputy chump uh, while he hit the brake. So the car is coming to a rolling stop. They both roll out onto, it was a dirt road. This is not asphalt. This is dusty dirt back Colorado road in ranches. Uh, back in the mid-70s. And he said on the ground, he rolled a couple of times and came on his back. He he wanted to see what ever happened, not knowing if this was going to blow up their car or not. And he said this orange spherical light, like fire, came right to the front of the uh, front window of their deputy car and did a 90-degree turn and went south. They're both on the ground. They get up and they said, "This is this is enough. We're we're going back. We're going home. This is enough." 
in the morning, they both, with the sun up, drive back to that intersection. Oh, and oh, one more thing. When they had gotten back up and were dusting themselves off at the intersection, they both said, oh, my God, look, there is a red glowing square in the trees at the intersection. That's what made them finally say, oh, this is enough. They, it scared them. It was, uh, they thought, like three feet by three feet outline, red glowing, perfect square in trees right there at the intersection. Hmm. So now they're back in the morning. And Bill Waugh said, Linda, we could clearly see where we had both rolled on that dusty dirt road and where the car had come to a stop. All of it's right there in the dirt. And then we realized we're at the intersection and there's no forest and there's no red square. What? That did we see last night? Pretty amazing. We this is one of those days, Ben, when I wish the show was three hours long. Yeah, <laughs> but it's but it's not. Um, just did you have a, one final question? Because uh, I had just one point. No, it's up to you. Go go. Okay. Now, uh, Linda, a few years ago, now we haven't gotten to most of our questions. We'll, we'll we'll have to do another show as soon as possible. But a few years ago, uh, we had a series of conference calls and involved yourself, ourselves, uh, Bill Burns from UFO Hunters, and, you know, a, few, uh, and a, a number of people, uh, it would vary, Larry Lowe, but some people who were just ordinary folks who had some interesting impressions, and the, idea, and the listeners would never have heard of them. But the idea was to discuss the 2012 to 2016 period, just to brainstorm about possibilities, Possible dangers, possible uh, futurism, as one as one might call it. Uh, our discussions really never came to any great resolution, but uh, we did agree that it is a strange time, and that some interesting things have happened or may be happening. And what do you, we just want to comment briefly on how you've seen that pan out uh, about the times we're living in, about. Uh, uh, things you've discussed in high strangeness and, and know about them, is it getting, is it, is it coming to any kind of resolution? Is it getting more confusing, less confusing when it comes to what the things we talk about? Uh, what say you? Oh, there's no question things have changed. Just in the, uh, since the beginning of 2016, there has been one whistleblower after another emerging that have never spoken before. One William Mills Tompkins working on a book with Robert Wood, who worked at McDonnell Douglas, uh, goes on the record with in the book with me, with others, saying that in World War II, he just had his 93rd birthday in May, and let me tell you, he's sharp as a tack. And uh, that's why he, he's telling a story about being a young man in World War II, because he's 93 years old, and he still can talk very coherently uh, when he was in uh, his early teens his father would take him down to the Long Beach California Naval Yard to look at the ship this is before we have been bombed by Japan in December uh, 7th of 1941 this is uh, what would be at the end of the 30s 
And he would go home and make models of everything that he saw in the ship, uh, in the naval uh, bay. And his father began to realize that his son had a real talent and encouraged it, would take him to more places, and eventually a store in Hollywood, California, north of Long Beach, learned about this teenager's incredible scale models of naval uh, ships of the United States and asked to do a display in this store in Hollywood. And this was approximately 1940-41, somewhere 39-40-41. And a naval admiral calls up his father and says, I must come to talk to you. We have a problem. And in a meeting with the then teenage William Mills Tompkins and his father and the Navy Admiral, they said, your models have to be taken out of the store in Hollywood. They are a threat to our national security. And what we have learned is your scale models are so accurate that enemies could use your scale models. And the son and the father were taken aback. And the, what the, it all boiled down to is that the teenager had sort of an uh, idiot savant ability. But, and the Navy said, we would like you to come to the Navy and work for us and use the same talent. This is where the story picks up with William Mills Tompkins being in the Navy. And he said, one of my first assignments was to look at photographs of things that had been photographed in the skies of Earth and make models. <laughs> Cylinders, discs, triangles, spheres, dumbbells. This is what this guy was doing all the way through World War II, learned about Hitler, and said in the interview with me, and has said now to others, World War II was an extraterrestrial war being fought through human bodies. And the story he is telling today is now being told by Thomas DeLong through the so-called military advisors that he is working with, was in the Anthony Sanchez book, UFO Highway. Uh, there are multiple voices that are now saying that we are, the government feels it's over a barrel, can't keep this secret much longer, and there are all sorts of efforts behind the scenes to start pushing out we're not alone in this universe, that uh, there have been civilizations on Mars, uh, that uh, there were never gods on Earth, they were all extraterrestrials, that includes the Mesopotamian culture, the Egyptian culture, the Greek culture, Lemuria, Mu, all extraterrestrials. And that what this boils down to, as we get into the last half of 2016, this whole huge story is who owns Earth and who really are homo sapiens sapiens. Well, if any of our listeners sleep tonight, it'll be a miracle. I'll tell you, Linda, terrific discussion. We're out of time. Thank you so much, but you've given us a lot of fodder for about 35 future shows. So right, we'll be in you. touch. Thank you so yeah, much. Go to earthfiles at earthfiles.com. Earthfiles.com. Or go to my website, earthfiles.com. Absolutely. I'm there every day almost. It's great. Thanks, Linda. Talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Bye. Okay. All right, our announcements, folks. 
Join us in Exeter, New Hampshire in three weeks on Saturday and Sunday, September 3rd and 4th for the Exeter UFO Festival. It's a really great, fun event sponsored by the Kiwanis Club there to benefit local children's charities. Whole town gets involved. The restaurants, the merchants, it's a lot of fun. And uh, <clears throat> we'll be speaking along with Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, Stephen Mather-Lees, Peter Robbins, Ryan Mullahay. <clears throat> we will present a new talk on more strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts. And we'll do a live broadcast on that Sunday of this show in this in this slot. And you can listen here on ON 1240 or Simple Radio app by streamer. So Friday and Saturday, October 7th and 8th, uh, we're back at the Greater New England UFO Conference at City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Then Sunday, October 16th, join us at Roger Williams Park in Providence, Rhode Island, for the Taking Steps for Crohn's and Colitis Charity Walk. We'll broadcast live from the event at noon with investigator Shane Searway, author William J. Hall as well, and who knows who else might turn up. So you can join us and the rest of the team Behind the Paranormal, or just donate. See the link at BehindTheParanormal.com. The walk is 2 to 3 miles and begins at 10 a.m., and there will be more information here on ON1240 as the date approaches. And if you donate $15 or more via the team page, you can walk with us on the 16th, and you will get a free Behind the Paranormal slash ON1240 slash Taking Steps for for Crohn's and Colitis t-shirt to mark the occasion, I should say. On Tuesday, October 18th, <clears throat> I'll be the speaker with the monthly uh, MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network event, in uh, the Philadelphia area. That'll be at 6.30 p.m. at the Tredefern Public Library, Upper Gulf Road in Wayne, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about that at MainlineUFO.com. Meanwhile, find out more about our show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll also find nearly 700 free recorded shows from both ON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And our forthcoming book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is now available for pre-order on the publisher's website. That's shifferbooks.com. So just search Behind the Paranormal. Or you can use the link on our website, behindtheparanormal.com, and it's also available for pre-order on amazon.com as well. The uh, book is slated for release by Schiffer Books in January, and there will be a release party of some kind, I guess, uh, probably here in our local listening area, and we will let you know about that as well. Okay, you can find my books uh, on amazon.com as well. And, uh, so next Sunday, August 21st, we will welcome British experiencer and author Mark Anthony Wyatt uh, to talk about the gunpowder ghosts and other paranormal encounters. Okay. And uh, we leave you this afternoon with a rather jocular, I hope, quote from American author Mark Twain. When we remember we are all mad, as in crazy, the mysteries disappear and all life stands explained. Ben, I just wanted to say it's great to have you back after a month and uh, <laughs> back from movie land. And uh, yes. we're just, uh, you know, it's good to have you back. Well, as Mark Twain also said, New England does not have climate, only weather. That's right. Anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.